Well, presently in the U.S., there are over 18,000 funeral homes. Each of these serves about 115 families per year. The average cost of the traditional service is around $7,800. These big expenses include service fees and caskets and plots and grave markers. You can imagine for these reasons, in recent years, cremation has been on the rise, hovering around 60%. In our state, in the state of Washington, home funerals are permitted, but home burials are not. We are one of three states that have made that illegal. You could zone a portion of your property as a family cemetery and conduct a burial that way. Well, this morning we meet a man who had something like that. He's a man who gave his away, fulfilling in just about every way, the role of the funeral home. This morning's account is the account of the burial of Jesus Christ. You know that the life of Jesus prompted a response from people. It invited a reaction. Well, the death of Jesus does the same thing. It, too, promotes a response or a reaction from others. In our text last Sunday, Jesus died on the cross. Today, in our account, God appoints people to care for him, to give him a proper, noble burial. Yet in our account today, we'll also meet old foes, those usual suspects slithering about in their typical fashion. This burial of Jesus will be a record of two different mindsets. It's two different attitudes and two different beliefs about who Jesus is. And in all this, there's something we can learn about ourselves. And you and I will consider two different responses one might have to the death of Jesus. And I concede that these topics this morning, the topic of death and and burial and care for the dead, they're not the most uplifting topics. But you may have observed throughout the rest of the New Testament that just like the cross, the Bible has taken these events and given them very favorable language. Jesus does, after all, flip so many things on their head. For example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the burial of Jesus is a staple or or a centerpiece of the gospel message. What does Paul write? Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose. Later in Colossians 2, we announce our death to sin when we are baptized in the waters of baptism. In Romans 6, we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. We are dying a death to our old life. This morning, then, this burial of Jesus, it calls you and I to die. To die to the old way of living, to die to that old self, and to meet Jesus in the tomb, spiritually speaking, and then with him rise to newness of life. Well, we begin this morning with the first group who did that. In the death of Christ, we find an honorable affection, an honorable affection for Jesus Christ. 
It's Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, picking up where we left off last week. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Well, here we meet a man named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. All four Gospels mention Joseph, and each brings something unique about him to this broader picture of who he was. We see in our text, in Matthew, Joseph was a rich man. You may recall back in Matthew 19, the the great difficulty that exists for those who are rich and their ability to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the rich put their hope in stuff. And the rich lived distracted lives, acquiring things and and maintaining those things. The rich are you and I in this Western society. It's a reminder that we must be very careful to put our hope in Christ alone. Well, Joseph this morning shows that that can be done. It's possible to have much and have Jesus. In fact, in verse 58, this may be a key. He receives an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, keep in mind that Pilate isn't maintaining some counter in a pawn shop in the local strip mall. You just can't go into this guy and get some kind of service. That's not how Pilate works. This man is fortified in the Roman governor's palace. Very difficult to gain access. We might say that a poor man may not be received at all. So Joseph is using his wealth for the kingdom of God. You see where he's from in Matthew's account. He's from Arimathea. Early church fathers locate Arimathea in a place called Ramah. The Bible connection there is Samuel. Samuel was born in Ramah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Going one book further over in the Gospel of Mark, Mark describes his work. In chapter 15, verse 43, Joseph was a prominent member of the council. And the council here is the Sanhedrin. That is the supreme court of Israel. The highest ruling body among the Israel people. That's 70 men plus a high priest. His name is Caiaphas. Unfortunately, they're best known, at least in the New Testament, for their role in the the trials of Jesus. And I would note here that Joseph not only sat on the council, but he sat as a prominent member of the council. I mean, here's a guy who's not just on the team, but he's a a leading voice in the locker room. That's the role of, of Joseph, an influential member of the Sanhedrin. Mark tells us that he, quote, gathered up courage. 
Like you and I, Joseph had to overcome his fears to faithfully serve Jesus Christ. He had to gain an audience with Pilate. Remember, he had to access this Roman governor's palace. And Pilate's no friend of the Jews. It's intimidating to to try to, to gain an audience with a guy like that. And then, this is Joseph thinking ahead and through the possibilities of what may be, he had to ask him for the corpse of a convicted criminal. Remember, Jesus is not a man who died peacefully in his home. It was not some accident in the workplace. Jesus died by crucifixion. That that means he was condemned by Rome as a criminal, and the worst kind of criminal at that. Verse 58 says, Joseph asked for the body. The, The King James Version reads that he begged. That language is probably a little strong, but it helps us to get a sense or to get an idea of what that was like. And then Joseph, thirdly, if he did receive permission from Pilate, he actually had to go retrieve the body in broad daylight and take it down off of a cross. This is no easy task. Well, Luke also has something to say about Joseph, and he describes his stance. Quote, he had not consented to the council's plan and action. That means that Joseph did not agree with the verdict or with the search for false testimony against Jesus or the plan to put Jesus to death, or the idea of delivering him to Pilate. Either Joseph voted against this, or he wasn't involved in that vote at all. Now, you've got to remember that the trial of Jesus took place off the books. It took place at night in the home of the high priest named Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin consists of 70 different people, and I imagine they didn't all fit into Caiaphas' home. So that means that there were a select group, we might call it a select jury, that was present for this trial, quote, trial of Jesus. And I would imagine that they would be people whose opinions Caiaphas already knew. And I would imagine they were those who he invited personally because of their opinions. I wonder if Joseph received an invitation. Well, John tells us in his gospel why Joseph dissented, why Joseph feels the way he does. He was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And we read it in Matthew. Matthew said it this way. He had also become a disciple of Jesus. At some point, Joseph believed upon Jesus Christ. And in verse 58... He now steps over a line. He steps down a path from which he cannot return. There's no turning back here. Whatever secrecy he had, whatever concealment, whatever kind of silence, he is now out publicly on the side of a crucified criminal. We might say that he's a friend of the enemy of his peers. And in his love, and in his affection, he buries the body of Jesus. 
Now you see here that Pilate has granted him the body. He's given him permission. And Pilate cannot seem to get away from this case. You may recall back during the trials, he sent Jesus over to Herod, hoping that Herod might deal with it, but Jesus is sent back. Pilate's even declared him not guilty, literally washing his hands of the matter. Well, Pilate knew that, that Jesus died by this time, and, and that seemed to surprise him. Crucifixion was supposed to take longer than this. So Pilate scouted it out, and, and the Jews actually pressed him to do this. The Sabbath is soon going to begin, and the Jews couldn't have these bodies remaining on the cross. It was considered unclean or a defilement ritually, ceremonially, ceremonially to the land. And they get this idea from the book of Deuteronomy. This is Jewish law. In chapter 21, verse 22, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, verse 31, John tells us, that they go to Pilate and they ask Pilate to break the legs of those on the cross. It's Jesus and the two robbers. And this idea of breaking the legs is meant to to speed up death. If the legs are broken, they can't pull themselves up or push themselves up to to take in air, to let air out. And John tells us that the legs of the two criminals were broken, but when they went to Jesus, they discovered him dead. And I believe, again, this would be evidence for the intensity of his scourging. That preceding the cross and the march to Golgotha, he was scourged so severely that it brought about an early death, earlier than usual, for a crucifixion. Well, they didn't break his legs. Instead, they they pierced his side with a spear, and, and blood and water came out. Rome took that as a sign that Jesus had, in fact, died. So with that proof in mind, Pilate then gives Joseph the body. And in this burial now, we're going to see from Joseph a man of great generosity, a man of bold witness, and a man of great sacrifice. Joseph generously gives Jesus a tomb. Now, tombs in this era varied in in size and in design. Uh, There's a big one in Jerusalem. The biggest there is called the Tomb of the Sanhedrin. Uh, There's 63 elaborate and ornate chambers carved into stone. But Joseph's tomb, the tomb Jesus laid in, it was much more humble. At the same time, it was very much a symbol of wealth. Very few people had this access. Only the upper class would, would possess a tomb. And this tomb was, was probably holding a, a ledge, if you could imagine, a U-shaped ledge with three places on either side, all three sides to lie down. One side of that room was the entrance. And each of the ledges in the tomb was a place to lay a body. We might call it a family tomb. The opening to this tomb would be very small, three feet by three feet at the most, 
And we know it was on the small side because in John's account at the resurrection, John and Peter have to stoop. They have to stoop down to look into the tomb. It's a small opening. And they see immediately wrappings, linen wrappings lying about. That means it was a tomb smaller in size. It was one room, we might say, versus many chambers. In verse 60, you notice that Joseph also had a large stone. This one could roll. Again, that's no small expense, but evidence of his wealth. And it was a new tomb, meaning that it had never been used before. Probably, again, for for Joseph and his family. It would be an act of great generosity to give this to Jesus. To realize that the money invested is not mine, but God's. And to realize that the time waiting for its completion is not mine, but God's. And to realize that this brand new tomb and the plan that I have for it, it is not mine, but God's. Now, Lord, forgive me for pretending that all that I have is mine. And may I steward what you've given me with open hands. And may I steward what you've given me with with open eyes and open ears. That's the prayer of, of a generous man who knows that all things that we have belong to God. That's the attitude of Joseph of Arimathea. With a generous heart, he, he gave to God what belonged to God. He was a generous man. Secondly, Joseph makes a selfless sacrifice. He also makes a selfless sacrifice. In burying Jesus, Joseph rolled up his sleeves. Now, no doubt, as a man of wealth, he had servants, and in fact, he would need help to perform the entire burial process. But the Gospels seem to to bring Joseph back to front and center. They seem to put Joseph in physical contact with Jesus. He touched him. He arranged his body. He did it just right. He would have carried Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, I'd say he packs his deeds together in this one loaded verse. It's a hefty verse, and I want to I want to read it to you based on how it's written in the Greek language. And it's overdone here. We don't write this way. We don't talk this way. But this helps to bring out Joseph's involvement. Listen to how we might translate it. Joseph, he bought a linen cloth. He took Jesus down. He wrapped him in linen cloth. He laid him in the tomb. Do you hear how that pronoun keeps pointing back to Joseph? and assigning Joseph great responsibility, a huge role in the burial of Jesus. For Joseph, with permission granted, it began with a walk up Golgotha. And this is the same road that Jesus traveled only a few hours prior. And then he very carefully very carefully, very gently. He had to bring Jesus down off the cross. And then Joseph, 
I would think, first of all, closed the Lord's eyelids by taking his hand and running it right down over his brow, over his swollen eyelids to to close his eyes. And then he would have removed the nails from his hands and his feet again very carefully so as not to damage the body. And then with help, he would transport the body there from Golgotha on that hill to a place where they could properly prepare him for burial. Very gracefully, just like a mother swan puts her babies on her back as she floats out into the water for the first time, not, not to, to move or not to lose balance. Alan Bender published an article on Jewish burial customs. And he observed that first they had to, to warm the water for the cleansing, and they called it a cleansing, not a washing, but a cleansing of the body. Now, Joseph is on a time crunch, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But with help, Joseph could have done this and taken that warm water and began to wash Jesus from from head to foot, washing off all, all of the dirt, all of the dust caked on his body from sweat, washing off all of the the dried blood and and bathing his wounds. And then with help, they would would tilt the body just just a bit to the right to get the back and the, the top half of his body on the back and then tilt him to the left and wash the other side. And in some cases, they would cut the fingernails But in most cases, they had a very special pin that they used to to clean them around the edges and underneath. And then they washed his hair and and arranged it just as he would have worn it throughout his life. And then they would have dried his body and wrapped him in linen wrappings, packing in myrrh and aloes to, to minimize the odor and to preserve the body. In verse 59, Joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. It's probably the nicest set of clothes our Lord wore throughout his life. Aren't you thankful for Joseph? For the way he cared for our Lord? What a deed of selfless sacrifice. I mean, he, he just gave away the family tomb. The Jewish law would prohibit anyone else from ever being buried in there. You could not be buried in the tomb of a criminal. And he sacrificed as well the the chance to worship. Remember, he he was in a Gentile palace in contact with a pagan pilot. He visited Golgotha, this place of death. All of this made him unclean for the Sabbath and for Passover to say nothing of his contact with a dead body. He wouldn't be able to partake of Passover or Sabbath worship according to Jewish law. Joseph made a a selfless sacrifice. And he came to Jesus, not to get, but to give. He was no consumer. Here is a man who sacrificed his family plan and his personal wealth and his religious worship. And he did it for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's worth us asking what our faith is costing us today. What has our faith cost us this morning? 
A selfless sacrifice is what, what Jesus did for us. It's what we do for Jesus. It's what Pilate, or excuse me, it's what Joseph modeled for us in his tender care of our Lord. I want you to see thirdly in this burial a bold witness. We hinted at this. Joseph demonstrated a bold witness in his burial of Jesus. And we mentioned that this was a very public deed that he did. But this is so good. Who helped Joseph? John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Do you remember Nicodemus? We have John 3.16 because of Nicodemus. Uh, He also served as a member of that Sanhedrin, that that Jewish ruling council. Um, And he he asked Jesus a bunch of questions. He comes to him by night in John 3, and and he's having a hard time understanding the metaphors our Lord used. Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Later in John 7, he's going to call into, into question this, this whole plan of, of trying to pursue Jesus and put him to death. And now, in the death of the Lord, he, he shows up to bury the Lord. And he comes honorably with 100 pounds of spices. I mean, that's the amount fit for a king. And Joseph, alongside Nicodemus, he demonstrates a bold witness. And I don't want to fail here to mention the women in verse 61 as well. Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, they're sitting opposite the grave. If you look back to verse 56, they were mentioned as well there. They witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, these women were were bold in their witness. They were bold in their presence when other disciples weren't. They faithfully followed the Lord right up to his burial. And that had to be an odd thing for them to see these two members of the Sanhedrin burying Jesus? What are they doing? They ruled to put Jesus to death, and now they're placing him in a tomb. I fear that in our day, this notion of a bold witness, it's becoming an endangered species. As a result, the spread of our faith in the West hasn't just halted, it's, it's, it's reversed. More and more people don't become Christians because they're hearing less and less about Christ. There's less and less bold witnesses among us. And we need bold witnesses. Can you imagine how encouraging it was when Joseph saw Nicodemus show up? Or for Nicodemus to see Joseph and know that he's not in this alone? I mean, this is a boost for them, and this is contagious. This kind of bold witness is, is the kind of witness that spreads. If you want to see our faith continue into the next generation and the next decade and, and, and beyond that, you and I, we need to be bold witnesses for Jesus. If we want our children, even your adult children, if you have adult children, Don't think they're not listening. You still have a way to speak into their ear. You can be a bold witness to them. I think you and I, we're we're praying for lost ones and for those who don't know the Lord, maybe family members and friends. Lord, send someone. You are that someone. 
We are the answers to those prayers if we'll be a bold witness. If we will step out in faith and have uncomfortable conversations and just trust the results to the Lord. I know that this room is filled with people who have a warm affection for Jesus Christ. Our duty then is to to step up and and show that and and let that witness be contagious to others, to one another in the room, but, but then who knows what that can do in the Lord to the lost. That day, the burial of Jesus, there were others who, who didn't share that affection. And in verse 62, we have a persistent rejection. If we saw in Joseph a, a noble affection for Jesus, we're going to see in the opponents of Jesus a, a persistent rejection. In verse 62, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. You know, even in the Lord's death, his opponents are conspiring against him. These religious leaders, they want maximum security. They want a complete lockdown at the tomb. And verse 62 indicates that the request came on the next day, the day after the preparation. That means that the day is Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. The day of preparation is Friday, the day before the Sabbath, preparation for the Sabbath. On Friday, Mark records, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out to God. That means Jesus died around 3 p.m. He breathed his last Jewish timekeeping of the time begins a new day at 6 p.m. You and I begin a new day at midnight or in the morning when we wake up. That's how we think about keeping time. They keep time. 6 p.m. is when the Sabbath begins. 6 p.m. on Friday, in their minds, is Saturday. This is why Joseph had to move so fast to bury the body. Uh, he, too, wanted to honor Deuteronomy and, ha- make, and, and keep the land pure and not be unclean or, or defiled for the Sabbath. But it also places these holy religious leaders in the Gentile palace of a heathen on the Sabbath. Evidently, they have no problem breaking the law when it suits their interests. And notice their rationale in verse 63 as well. They have no problem either blaspheming or deceiving. They call Jesus a deceiver. The irony is that it is they who are attempting to deceive. You may recall that in the the trial of Jesus, they're attacking him. And they're quoting the end of that verse. After three days I am to rise again. They're trying to enlist false testimony based on this saying that Jesus said. And in the trial, they accuse him of threatening the temple. Now they're speaking of Jesus' body. 
It's quite a shift. It's some pretty shady stuff. In verse 64, they want Pilate to dispatch soldiers so the disciples don't fake a resurrection. Are they worried about disciples? The last recorded deed of the disciples was back in chapter 26, verse 56, quote, Then all the disciples left Jesus and fled. Are the disciples not at this very moment hiding out somewhere? And why couldn't the temple guard just go arrest them like they did in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus? You know what I think? I think they're afraid. That very afternoon, these religious leaders experienced a severe earthquake, just like all the rest of creation in the surrounding area. That afternoon, these religious leaders saw rocks split and tombs open from this quake. That afternoon, a three-hour darkness hung in the middle of the day. And that afternoon, they saw soldiers, Roman soldiers, at the foot of Jesus exclaim, truly, this is the Son of God. And try to imagine for just a moment that sinking feeling in their gut, that ghost-white complexion, when they heard about the temple veil torn from top to bottom, laying in a heap in their beloved temple in a pile of dead religion. Friends, they don't want to keep someone out. They want to keep someone in. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know. Or as they say in Texas, go skin your own buffalo. (laughs) Pilate's already given them a guard. Again, I am sure he's tired of this case. And there's a seal, it's a rope that would extend across the the massive stone that covered the entrance. And and on each side of that stone, they'd attach some clay and they would stamp uh, some kind of Roman symbol into it to know that it's the Roman seal. And this is not some kind of orange traffic cone to go around or, or a yellow caution tape. This is the sign and seal of Rome. This is Roman jurisdiction and soldiers stand guard with their lives and their jobs, their careers on the line. In the persistent rejection, these leaders have tried to make one last attempt to box in Christ. And this morning, I want to ask of us, how about us? How are we doing this morning? I believe that there's many areas of our lives where we treat Jesus with an honorable affection. But I want to ask if, if there is some area of our lives where we have closed Christ off, where we, we've, we've boxed him in somewhere, or we've sealed him off and it's quiet, we want him quiet in the dark. If that has happened, I want you to think back with me to your baptism. The Lord illustrates an important truth for our new lives in our baptism. Paul is asked in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? When Jesus went into the tomb, when that tomb was sealed, it proved he died. 
He was removed from sight and he's sealed in the earth. The grave, after all, is for corpses of dead men, not the living. You see, believer, when you went under the water, in the waters of baptism, you put on display a death that happened in your soul. You died to sin and you now live with Christ. But you didn't remain there. You do not remain there underneath the water, submerged. Paul continues, therefore, we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might we walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of death, so too will we be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Jesus. You see, who you were, who we were, the pursuit of sin and the pursuit of that old life, that has died with Jesus. You can think about it this way. Our old life, those old pursuits, they were beaten, they were scourged, they were exhausted, they were marched, they were nailed, they were hung, they were crucified, and they died. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, says Paul, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Don't dig up corpses If this morning in some way you have sealed a corpse into a tomb and you've excluded Jesus, be sure that you do not go up digging up old sin again. Jesus is alive and so are we. Don't dig up dead bodies. You see, the death of Jesus is is the death of you and the life that Jesus lives is, is your life as well. Jesus, what a strength for weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we are united with you in your death. And we're united with you in your resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that we would welcome you into every area of our new life, that you would not be sealed off from any area. I pray that we would walk in newness of life, and if any here this morning are discouraged or or struggling, may your Holy Spirit give them courage and give them encouragement. Lord, you've been so faithful to your Father and so faithful to his people. We thank you and we love you and you are our friend. Amen.